Hello, this is Dennis Sanders, and welcome to episode 127 of Church and Me. Welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. So we live in an era where being progressive or conservative isn't simply a choice or even a preference. It's an identity. A generation ago, we could call ourselves conservatives or liberals, and we could actually still maintain relationships with people from a different political party. Now that's not the case. One example, David French. French is a conservative political pundit. He has fairly solid credentials when it comes to conservative positions, especially on abortion and same-sex marriage. But his staunch opposition to Donald Trump made him a subject of hate among a number of people on the political right. And when he expressed his support for the Respect for Marriage Act uh, back in the fall, um, this act is the one that codified same-sex marriage, but also allowed for strong religious liberty protections. He was pilloried by many conservatives, even though his views on his religious views on same-sex marriage hadn't changed. For whatever reason, French makes some conservatives feel threatened. So last summer, there was a young Christian that penned a document where he asked a simple question, am I progressive? He shared a little bit about his background, um, having grown up in what would be considered evangelical, evangelicalism, and wanted to know, did he fit the definition? The young man who wrote this was uh, theologian Amar Peterman, and he wrote in this essay that he actually didn't really consider himself a progressive Christian. And he writes, quote, the conservative progressive spectrum, I believe, is a false binary used to categorize and make assumptions about those around us, he wrote in that essay. He continues, both conservative and progressive are handcuffs that align us with an in-group and ultimately distract us from thinking and acting with charity, nuance, and love. When we take on these identities as our own, we allow them to form our imagination, our faith, a faith, our world, and the ideological other. We place ourselves within the social commitments that these labels hold, which may limit our ability to speak truth and love. So today, I'm actually going to be talking with Amar. And talking about what it means to be Christian in such a politically polarized era, and how Christian faith must break out of this false binary. But lest you think that he is advocating for a mushy middle, Amar is aiming for a faith that is captured that uh, for a faith that is not captured by the political definition of our days, but also speaks prophetically to the challenges facing our society now. Now, Amar has an eclectic background. He had a he got a bachelor's from Moody Bible Institute and an MDiv at Princeton Seminary. He currently writes a regular column uh, for at Sojourners and has written for other publications such as Christianity Today and Christian Century. He's currently a program manager for Interfaith America, where he leads a, a group of uh, young emerging leaders and helping them to flourish in their projects and initiatives. And he currently lives with his wife, Emilja, and their dog, Penny, in Milwaukee. I think that you will very much enjoy this episode. So, without further ado, let's listen to Amar Peterman.
Well, Amar, thanks again for uh, taking the time to talk today. And I think I'd like to kind of start out by uh, getting your background, um, kind of um, what are you doing and um, kind of then leading up to what led you to write the article. Yeah, so I'm a, a recent graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. When I was there, I studied uh, American religious history and public theology, really as a path to try to examine how specifically the Christian tradition got to where it is today uh, mm-hmm. and how Christians and people of faith at large have brought their religious beliefs, their uh, convictions, their traditions into the public square as being generative, beneficial things for our larger society. And so for me, that uh, looked like starting a consulting firm to help churches and philanthropists, um, nonprofits engage in issues of Christian and public life, religion and society more broadly. Uh, And then that evolved into a project called This Common Life, which now includes uh, a newsletter that I write where this article was initially published, um, as well as a group of uh, emerging Christian leaders that is now up to about 50 folks who gather monthly um, to learn from uh, experts in the field, people who have been around for a while. Um, these are all young aspirational leaders within the Christian faith who share a love for the church, uh, a love for Jesus Christ, and a desire to impact their communities and our society at large um, in a way that is that follows in the way of Jesus, that is loving and hospitable, um, relational. And so a huge roadblock for me was examining where I sat in all of these various labels. And so as I began writing more publicly, I would have folks who, you know, put me in these boxes of being a progressive Christian, being a conservative Christian. Um, and I, it led me to just a question like, what am I? I don't, I don't know what to call myself. Uh, and before Princeton, I was at Moody Bible Institute. And so being in those two spaces as an Indian adoptee, as someone who was trying to ask questions that reconciled together faith and ethnicity and culture, um, I, it, at Moody was, was, uh, often placed um, as or pitted as this like far left liberal, which I didn't think was, was uh, who I was. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to Princeton, the the exact opposite happened as someone who uh, situates myself within the evangelical tradition, still certainly with, with um, some hesitancy and concern, um, but still staying within that world. um, All of a sudden now I'm this hyper conservative who is at Princeton and I need to prove that I'm not trying to plant my evangelical flag in the middle of the the quad and and convert everyone to evangelicalism. And it just reminded me, and it's something I had seen already, um, but really solidified this, this reality that progressive and conservative are locative terms in that they only matter or they matter in certain ways in certain social locations. And so the article was my attempt to parse out that reality and then also try to move against saying, or just blatantly or, or kind of without thought using these labels to define define others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that sounds at least very familiar to me because um, I also came from an evangelical background. But if you kind of place me in that environment, I would probably be considered this wild-eyed leftist or something, um, which would be kind of funny. And then, but, you know, the last 20, 30 years or so, I've been um, involved in in mainline um, denomination. I'm ordained in a mainline denomination. And there I feel incredibly kind of more conservative, even though Again, in in neither space, I've I've not changed major views. I but I don't fit neatly into what at least people want it to be, or at least I think how people's idea of what a progressive Christian or conservative Christian is. So I totally understand that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So 
kind of in writing this article, it was actually written in a response to another person um, who wrote about how he went to college, uh, to a conservative Christian college, and ended up a leftist. And mm-hmm. that sparked a reaction. Um, what led you to kind of react? To, I mean, what was it about that article that made you react with your own article? Yeah, so the article I mentioned is from my friend Josiah, who's my editor for for my column at Sojourners. Oh, okay. And so uh, he's a good friend, and we you know are talk monthly as we're working through pieces. But what initially sparked the desire to to include and in some ways respond to his piece was the conversations we have every month as I'm pitching pieces to Sojourners for for this column, and he is someone who is a leftist. Um, who is really interested in Marx um, mm-hmm. and and more far left um, ideology? For me to come in and say I want to talk about this kind of constructive vision within America that isn't completely dismantling the systems that exist, um, but working to reform and correct um, and ultimately form people towards being more loving, generative, hospitable people. Um, we when we first began working together, we we butted heads a lot. Um, and we're constantly editing over one another. But now almost two years in, uh, we just have like a really great working relationship of, mm-hmm. I know what he's trying to say. He pushes me to think um, more critically. And in return, the pieces that I write hopefully are uh, inspiring some sense of hope, um, even in, in the world that we see today. And so for both of us coming out of, you know, relatively, um, theologically conservative spaces for him to turn towards kind of this far left Christianity was a, was a path that I saw myself also going down. Um, when I, as I mentioned in the article, similarly saw this kind of very conservative Christianity. It's a, it's a faith that told me that my Indianness and my Christian faith couldn't go together, that they were mm-hmm. incompatible and that uh, I would have to give up my Indianness in, in order to be a Christian which, of course, um, the language that I know for that now is just this homogenization and this move into whiteness uh, as being the maturation of Christian faith. And uh, I knew that that wasn't for me. I didn't have the language to say it at the time, but I knew that there was something wrong with that. Uh, And so the alternative that I saw was, of course, what was most vocal, most present, which was just this very far radical left uh, Christianity that used people, you know, within uh, the Black tradition, within Latinx communities, within Asian communities, but in some ways also misinterpreted them uh, and pulled out, you know, proof texted just as much as the conservatives were doing towards these ends of radical liberation uh, that I saw the same exact faults of, of not revering uh, and honoring the text, not taking the person of Jesus seriously, um, because the places where Jesus says to love our enemies uh, and to turn the other cheek, those were just as much taboo texts as when Jesus talks about liberation and love and justice um, for my theologically conservative context. And so I wanted to find something in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where resonating with with Josiah's experience, but then also wanting to add my own. Uh, is where that response kind of came from. Uh, I know Josiah received it well um, and knew it certainly wasn't a critique of him, um, but just in a kind of uh, offering my own experience next to his, which is things that we've we've talked about in our calls before as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's where that's where that came from. It kind of sounds like the relationship, in some ways, it's well, sounds like it started off antagonistic, but more now building off of each other and, and being able to kind of uh, challenge each other in a way that's, that's more positive. It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, began with just pitching an article to him um, in what was probably spring of 2020. Um, They picked up and the piece was on reconciling my Asian American identity with my evangelical upbringing. And we just kept going back and forth about how much whiteness should be included in it, a description of whiteness, uh, a critique of it. And my position was really that 
I was tired of talking about whiteness um, and that we, you know, the folks who wanted to read the piece, uh, if they didn't know what whiteness was, they probably wouldn't like the piece anyways. Uh, and Josiah was like, no, we're in this cultural moment where we need to really rail on, on the institutions and structures and imagination of whiteness. Uh, and so we struck a happy medium there. I think it's why the piece um, was was successful in that it, it accomplished what I was trying to say um, in a way that was better than it, if I would have just tried to say it on my own. Uh, and for some reason, Sojourners decided to invite me to be a columnist uh, soon after that. And I have never confirmed with Josiah if it was because I was trying to push back and offering this more constructive vision. Uh, but that's, uh, he, he must have enjoyed to some degree working with me, even though we were doing a lot of back and forth. Um, and yeah, that led to now a two year relationship of working together, writing pieces uh, across a number of topics that from like the metaverse um, to critical race theory and how Christians should engage with that to the downfall maybe of Twitter to everything in between. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a really constructive relationship. I've learned a lot from him. Uh, and yeah, I hope, I hope the, the constructive vision I have has rubbed off a little bit on him as well. Do you think that that kind of a relationship is really missing in American especially American church life, but probably also in American political life today, that we don't have these type of relationships where we may not see eye to eye. And actually it may be a challenging relationship, but yet it's, it can help be beneficial to each other. I mean, are, are those spaces just, you just don't see that as much? Yeah, I think that's where, you know, as I mentioned in the article, where this language of, conservative and progressive so often can become handcuffs to these tribal in-groups where we agree with certain people because they're labeled as progressive or because they're on CNN or Fox News. And so you don't think critically about what they're saying. Um, you just accept it because, oh, they're the champion of this progressivism that I identify with. Uh, and perhaps even worse to the alternative, you don't listen to the other side with any sense of charity. Um, or in, or understanding that there might be a chance that the person on the other side of the political aisle or theological side um, really is trying to seek something good and their means of going about that are different than my own. And it doesn't mean I have to agree with them by any means. Um, but I think the move that we need to make more often is a kind of an empathic move towards saying, I can disagree with what you believe, but I will do my best to try to understand why you believe it um, and what things are forming you, what social circumstances and locations, what experiences are leading you to think that these certain actions that I see as being unchristian and, and being unloving and, and damaging to our society and the institutions of our society uh, and our democracy are to you in some sense something good and something to value uh i think once we can do that then we can enter into a conversation that is actually uh persuasive and i can make a compelling argument for what i believe um because i like you would do in, in any sort of public speech or any sort of writing uh attempting to understand your audience and why your audience thinks in a certain way uh is lost in in the kind of certain way that we converse today where we listen to speak um, and we listen only so much as to have something to reply to rather than to listen to, to try to understand to the best of our ability. And that's a struggle. It's, I think it's a struggle for everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we need much more of that in our world today. Um, and it begins with kind of this empathic move towards trying to understand people um, across lines of difference. One of the reasons I was interested in, in chatting with you about this article is because um, it's always fascinating when people see you as who you are as non-white, 
they will automatically think they know your politics or belief mm-hmm. systems or whatever. And it doesn't matter if you're a conservative. I mean, both conservatives, I think, and progressives immediately will think, oh, you're African-American, so you have these viewpoints, or um, you're Asian-American, so you have these viewpoints. And um, I'm kind of wondering, did any of that factor into writing the article? And has that been something you've thought about um, in your writings and, and in general? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the the best way to de- to describe it is that I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I was born in India, uh, but adopted when I was an infant and raised in a small Polish Catholic neighborhood called Pulaski, where I played in polka bands and marching bands uh, and was learning like Polish phrases because that's what my friends were doing. And I grew up in this white evangelical context of uh, Green Bay's version of a megachurch. It's not that big of a town. Um, And so I don't know if they have a real megachurch, but it was the closest thing to it and served on staff there as a worship leader for three years while I was in high school. Uh, And so I was deeply formed in these conservative, theologically and politically spaces. And then I moved to Chicago to go to Moody and... uh, in my my first semester there, there was a black preacher from the South Side who was invited to come up uh, and speak. And he, uh, this is in 2015. Mm-hmm. And so the Black Lives Matter movement is gaining a lot of attention. Mm. And so he begins talking about, he opens his sermon talking about the need uh, for this movement, even in disagreement, the need for its existence. Um, and the simple elevation of the truth that Black lives do matter, apart from the movement the the propositional truth. Uh, and I got up and walked out in protest uh, because I was so deeply formed by these white spaces that I saw that as something that was detrimental to the gospel, a distraction from the gospel. We're not supposed to talk about race and ethnicity. We're supposed to talk about Jesus. We're supposed to talk about apologetics. We're supposed to make a rational intellectual argument for the gospel and persuade people to become Christians. Um, And so that was, although I was a brown person, I was someone from India, uh, that was the tension that existed within me of being Indian, but being formed in these white spaces. And it wasn't until uh, really I met my now wife, um, Emily, who grew up in Eastern Europe. Uh, Her parents were Baptist um, missionaries to to Latvia. Mm. Um, And so she was raised in a fundamental Baptist context in Eastern Europe, uh, but had a deep critique of of whiteness, um, of of Western values um, in in society. And so it was actually her, this this white woman, who comes in and sends me an article by Willie Jennings that I take and, you know, quote unquote, tear up uh, and critique. And now looking back at it, I look at how foolish I was, um, of course. But the the outward appearance of saying, oh, well, I'm brown and my wife is white. And so she must be the conservative and I would be the progressive uh, was completely incorrect when we were, you know, in college and I was working through these topics and these issues. And of course it's a deeply formative time. And so I like to think the, the happy conclusion to that uh, initial story is that four years later, I was back in that same chapel um, with Willie Jennings, um, who surprising, surprisingly enough had one chance to speak at Moody. Um, I don't think he'll be coming back. Um, by God's, I think for his own sake, it'd be good for him to not come back. Um, but I was there in the front row, um, taking notes with my, my voice recorder thing out on my phone, trying to soak up everything he was saying. And so in this one location, um, my entire imagination of, of the world, um, and the role of Christianity and the person of Jesus changed. And so that's the, the happy ending to that story. Um, I don't remember who that that preacher was, but I apologize for walking out in protest. Uh, But um, yeah, I think these assumptions that we make across 
uh, identifying certain political beliefs with with people's uh, ethnicity, uh, the way they present themselves racially um, is, or I should say the way that they're racialized um, mm-hmm. is often a misconception that is another thing that just allows us to try to make oversimplified statements about people and categorize them um, for ourselves before we get the chance to hear from them, to know what people believe and what experiences are forming those beliefs. Well, I have to add, uh, as an aside, I have not heard um, Willie Jennings speak, but I've read his um, commentary on Acts, and that has been just kind of, every time I read it, it's just like, oh, wow. (laughs) It's like, okay, this is mind-blowing. So I'm... I'm glad you got to hear him because he just seems like he's one of those persons. I think he must just, you know, all of a sudden you, you hear something from him. It's like, wow, I've never thought of that before. And yeah, just kind of amazing. So um, one question in the article that you wrote is that um, you talk about the fact of the, the whole spectrum and how it's a false binary um, that kind of, allows people to categorize each other. Um, and you've already talked about the fact that sometimes we really don't listen to listen to the person and hear them. We kind of listen more to respond. Mm-hmm. How do you think that that has impoverished maybe political th- or public theology as a whole, but how has that even impoverished just the church in general? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think the church's inability to engage in conversation with the larger society um, movements and institutions that comprise society um, is to a, a great detriment that too often the church as an institution in itself is is continuing that that work of just listening in order to speak, listening in order to respond. Um, there was, of course... A lot of people have have alluded to the time in which the church was at the front of social movements working towards justice um, and liberation and love. And in the past decade or two, we've seen um, to the degree degree that we can talk about the American church as a whole uh, has not been on the front lines of this movement. And I think a lot of that is because we're listening only to speak in a certain way rather than listening genuinely to the concerns of our communities. Um, the concerns and issues of our society at large, and then turning to, uh, and this is where my evangelical comes out, but to the person of Jesus and to the scriptures and saying, what within our tradition, what within our faith, um, what within the way that God has revealed God's self to us, um, can we use, can we draw out in order to support and engage in our communities and in society as a whole? And so our inability to have conversations, and that happens both within the church, because uh, our, our local congregations feel so divided that how could there, even within a single community, be a unified effort towards something when the congregation is divided against itself, let alone for the church in America, which is in its own way, you know, a, a at a macro level divided against itself, um, able to, in any sort of unified or uniform way. Um, speak to to our society. And so I think uh, we need to begin that work of, of listening well uh, and then going back to to the scriptures and asking genuinely for for God to show up in these spaces. Um, and of course the spirit is, is already present there. Um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, the way that I often, try to approach it is finding having the holy curiosity to see the spirit at work in the most unexpected of spaces. Um, and when I, and it's a, a struggle, I'm far from perfect at, at doing this. Um, but I'm constantly surprised at where the spirit is working, um, in people's lives, um, within the Christian tradition, people who are outside of the Christian tradition, um, who are doing this work that I think Jesus is calling us to. Um, and so I'm constantly learning from those people, um, from those communities. Uh, and I think that's something that 
in, in response to our inability to have conversation is something that I think we can all be praying for um, and, and hoping will, will grow in each of us and in our communities is this holy curiosity to see how the spirit is already moving um, in our world today. And then following in that, um, rather than trying to trade or blaze our own paths um, that and, and hope that the spirit follows us or will we'll jump ahead of us um, instead saying, where's, where's God already at work? Um, and how can we join in, join in that? Do you think that that sense of, well, one, I, I guess maybe the basic question is asked is, do you see that curiosity as a spiritual value that um, is important for the Christian life in general? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, we see Jesus constantly asking questions. Um, Jesus is God. So there's a bit of a difference. Jesus is asking questions, maybe not necessarily uh, to hear an exact answer, but to evoke something out of the person um, who's being asked the question. Um, but I think the scripture is filled with people who are curious about what God is doing. Um, and often those are people who are outside of the Christian tradition, outside of being a follower of Jesus, um, who that curiosity leads them to ask questions and then they encounter Jesus. Um, or in the Hebrew Bible, they encounter God or the people of God, um, and they want to be a part of that. Um, they want to be a part of this community. And so, I, yeah, I certainly see that as a, a spiritual virtue, as something sacred um, to develop this this holy curiosity. One of the things that I was recently, I've listened to this in, a, in another podcast, and I've heard it before, is how kind of our political polarization um, one of the reasons that it's so fraught is that our politics are our, our identity. Um, so mm-hmm. that if someone critiques your viewpoint, then it's not simply that they're crit- critiquing, you know, liberalism or, or, or conservatism, but they're critiquing or, or condemning or whatever you. Yeah. Um, do you see that happening within the church? Um, and how is that detrimental? Do you think, how do you see, how is it detrimental to our kind of our Christian faith when we do that? Yeah, it, I, yeah, I see that uh, quite a bit. And I think that moves back to these, uh, I'm losing my, lost my train of thought there. Um Repeat. What was the first half of your question? You you worded it really well. Um, well, it's it's basically that we have instead of you know someone saying you know yeah I I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican that you know those are kind of they've become basically our identities. We've they've merged yes. in some way so that any type of attack or critique becomes personal because it's it's critiquing us. And yes. I guess my question is how is that affected kind of the witness of the church. Yes, absolutely. That is a lot of what I was looking at when I was doing all of this work in American religious history. Mm-hmm. Um, my focus was was on post-World War II American evangelicalism. So if you wanted to talk about uh, political identity being tied to a religious tradition, I mean, the there's, I think, few examples that are greater than um, the conservative, you know, evangelical Christian right, um, trying to get a literal foot in the door of the Oval Office to influence politics and government and culture. Um, and we see the detriment of that. We see its lasting impact today. Uh, we see the way that it demonizes certain people, the way that it has to manipulate certain events around us that should be terrible on their own account. Um, And so, for example, framing the Cold War as a battle against the Christian America versus the, you know, demonic USSR, the demonic communists. Um, And, you know, I'm not making the argument for like communist Christianity, uh, but at the same time, the strategy was not to be concerned about a nuclear war, but about elevating the morality of the United States through this very specific uh, 
brand and practice of American Christianity and welding those two things together in order to influence the culture. Um, and again, you can look to what is motivating that. A lot of it is fear. Um, a lot of it is the desire for preservation um, coming out of the moder- modernist fundamentalist controversy where uh, the the fundamentalists win in the legal court, but lose in the court of public opinion, um, go back and spend 30 or so years just like building out these institutions so that they're able to then enter the public square and then you get the moral majority um, and you see that running through the 70s through the 90s and then all of a sudden we're in the 2000s um, and you're seeing this on-ramp to what eventually becomes the 2016 election and so much of this is tied to the way that religious tradition and political party become one singular identity where one can't be critiqued without the other. And so when today I, you know, preach at a a church, I will at times preach at my, my father-in-law's church, which is a, again, fundamentalist, independent Baptist church. Um, And I'm this Brown kid who's getting up to, to preach. Um, And I am constantly, again, thinking about audience and going, how do I say this in a way that is palatable because whatever I say is going to be interpreted now through two lenses. Um, Again, going back to what you were saying earlier about the perception of who am I um, because I am not a white Baptist on this, you know, behind this pulpit, the assumption of of liberal values that are often going to be seen in a really negative light. Um, You know, my public writing and my credentials uh, in some ways, uh, will only solidify that in certain people's minds. But at the same time, that's why uh, I was really intentional after Moody of going to a place like Princeton. Um, Moody, I kind of fell into. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when I, uh, when I ended up there. I'm glad I, glad I was there. But I knew that um, if I wanted to represent myself well, uh, and especially when it comes to people just looking at my my educational background, um, where I've learned, the places I've been formed, um, that Moody is not representative of that. And so whatever the next place was going to be needed to be somewhere that could contrast um, contrast those beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so all to say, uh, yeah, I think there's a really close tie between political identity and religious identity. Um, and that's not how I think it should be. Uh, I think, and I I should say also that I don't think this sense of like centrism or moderatism is the answer either, because my goal is not to be in the middle. Uh, And I think even the desire for those who have the desire to do that, uh, I think it's an impossible, uh, impossible effort because the goalposts of what is conservative and what is liberal is constantly moving. Um, and so how can you stay in the middle of something that is never uh, a concrete middle, um, except to continually change your beliefs in order to stay in that middle? Mm-hmm. And so instead, I say, like, as I as I mentioned earlier, like I'm looking to the scriptures, I'm looking to the person of Jesus, I'm looking to God's work in the world um, and the witness of believers alongside of me, um, both past and present, in order to say, what things do I hold closely um, when it comes to engaging in our civic life. Um, and those are strong beliefs. Um, they're not uh, center um, and they're not attempting to be center. And But they are also not attempting to be progressive or to be conservative. Um, it sounds, you know, in some ways it's a cliche thing to say, like, my focus is on being a follower of Jesus. Um, you know, and that's not you know, I think the the really cliche, you know, way people say that is like, that's my my political I, my political identity is a follower of Jesus. I'm like, I have some critiques of that as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but the the for me, I think the centering identity is to say like, I love Jesus, um, and I seek to follow the way that Jesus lived and the way that God is acting in the world. At times that will put me on a progressive, you know, spectrum or a progressive end. At times it will place me on the conservative end. At times it'll, it'll put me right in the middle. Um, 
but the goal is never to be one of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, The goal is to try to the best of my ability to live faithfully in the world. Well, it sounds, I mean, I think the way that I've kind of always thought about it is, I mean, we have distinct beliefs that on, on policy that will probably have us be on one side of the spectrum or the other. But I think as a Christian, it sounds we always have to live in tension, um, that it's not always going to be neatly on one side or neatly on the other. And if it is, <laughs> then we we have a problem because <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think then we're following Jesus as as closely as we think we are. At least that's how I've always kind of I, I've begun to see it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Once you think you know, yeah. Once you think that you've you figured out this perfect balance of of your political party um, and following Jesus, um, you're probably in the wrong spot. Hmm. So, you know, we've talked a while about where I think American evangelicalism's kind of fault or, well, kind of where they have have really have acceded a lot to kind of the political realm um, in some ways. Where do you see kind of more mainline or progressive Christianity? Where have they kind of maybe given into culture more than trying to be the church. Yeah. Yeah. I think we see a lot of the same faults um, where, you know, a professor of mine at at Princeton um, named David Chow uh, helped me kind of see this within the context or the concept of Christendom, that this Western practice of Christianity that exists within America, both on the right and the left conservative progressive um, is this project that is rooted in the Protestant Reformation that really is a question of how the church reclaims power and cultural influence um, when the state holds a lot of power. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that is what Martin Luther is doing. That's what John Calvin is doing. Uh, That is what King James is doing and the Anglican church Uh, And so the central question that both the right, the liberal and the the progress uh, and the conservative both fall into is this framework of saying, how do we reclaim cultural dominance? How do we instill ourselves within the culture? Um, And the move for for David as a as an Asian American theologian is to say, look at all these places in the world where the idea of the central project of Christianity being claiming power is ridiculous because Christianity never claimed power. And I see that in South Asia, you see that through uh, much of the world where there was never, Christianity was never on top. Um, It was Mm -hmm. never the way that political leaders um, and social leaders were framing and imagining the world. Um, Christianity was a marginalized and continues to be a marginalized faith in much of the world. And instead, uh, the focus there is to follow Jesus, um, to love neighbors, um, to care for the the poor and the orphan and the widow, um, to feed the hungry, to do the very things that Jesus did. Um, And I think today in America, the mainline church uh, and Christian progressivism falls into that same trap that conservatives have of instilling this Christendom project of saying, uh, or being so, so concerned with cultural influence that they forget to do the very simple work of loving their neighbors um, that is not going to garner headlines. Um, it is not going to, uh, you know, make a big viral, you know, splash on social media. Um, it's simply doing the work that that Jesus did throughout his ministry. Um, and it is what, you know, the scriptures call us to. And again, those are the spaces, I think, where we see the spirit at work um, is in these very unassuming, quiet places away from cameras, um, and perhaps even cell reception, um, where we're not documenting uh, the way that we're being virtuous, but instead just saying, God is at work here and I want to be a part of that. Um, and so I think, yeah, both uh, sides of the theological spectrum um, often fall into the trap of, of being so concerned with cultural influence um, and political influence 
that we forget to do the very local, very communal work um, that the church has done for for much of its history. So in a kind of political climate that we are in, which is, again, fairly polarized, where do you see in the next few years the church trying to be an effective witness? Um, you know, we we can really turn on the TV and see where it hasn't been an effective witness, but, it, you know, where are those green shoots of hope um, that you maybe have been looking at and seeing um, that could be something that can help the church and ultimately then the rest of society years down the road. Yeah. I mentioned earlier this community of emerging Christian leaders that I've um, been organizing over the past year. Um, In many ways, that's been an incredible source of hope for me Um, Mm -hmm. in seeing folks want to join this community and be a part of it. Um, And the folks who are already in it, the way that they're showing up to these small meetings and asking really difficult questions um, to these uh, established, experienced field builders who are out in the world, you know, leading organizations and political uh, campaigns and churches and everything in between. Uh, And they're asking really good, nuanced, difficult questions that relate to the lived experience of everyday believers. And I think that is one thing that gives me a lot of encouragement. I think the future for the church is moving towards learning how to offer a compelling argument uh, and witness for the Christian faith. I think Mm -hmm. that move of persuasion or the art of persuasion um, and compulsion has been like deeply lost in our society where our debates are simply you know, I think of, uh, it was oh, probably now a while ago, but it was um, Ken Ham and Bill Nye debating evolution. It was the clearest example of two people talking directly past one another. I mean, it was set up like a like a standard debate, but from the rebuttals to their arguments to the, the closing statements, it was as if neither person was even heard the other. Um, mm. Like they had pre-written everything and assumed what the other person was going to say, and then just like read off a script. Um, and I was like, this is the least compelling thing I've ever heard in terms of being a debate. Um, but instead, I think the the witness of Christians today, uh, I think has the ability to be deeply compelling and deeply radical in the way that we love others, um, which is something that we just don't see in the world today. And it's something that the church is called to. It's something that followers of Jesus are called to. And so I think for me, the hope that I have for the church, that for for the future, is that we might learn how to better um, not persuade people intellectually, but persuade people with the way that we live to offer a compelling vision for our society um, and for the good that might come about when we work together across lines of difference, when we love one another. Um, it's It's rooted in our tradition. You know, it's what Jesus calls us to. And so I think if we live into that, um, we will see the church thrive um, and continue to see God at work um, in our world today. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with um, David French, who is um, has written, he was with National Review, and now the Dispatch and will soon be with the New York Times. Um, and I found him an interesting um, person to listen to. Um, yeah. Because I think on some issues I would not, obviously I don't agree with him with, but it's interesting how much, I guess the, the word that comes to mind is generosity um, that he has and in yeah. the spiritual value of generosity, of listening, of understanding um, where another side is coming from. Um but also being open to being even changed in some ways, maybe not, you know, that in a radical way, but in a way that at least to see a different perspective that he hadn't seen before. Um, 
that to me is something that has been missing. I think on all all sides in the church, but it, I think especially within American evangelicalism. But um, it's it's that kind of that that spirit that we just don't see that very very much in, in our society these these, yeah. these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really love the work that that David is doing, as well as uh, John Inazu uh, is another another voice um, speaking often within um, the context of religious pluralism, um, mm. who is doing really wonderful work, and then uh, I think. Phil Vischer as well, the former, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Holy Ghost podcast, but then also Veggie Tales. Uh, I think he's been a really wonderful, and I, I know that they they've all been in conversation together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it offers a different. I'm, I'm glad that it offers, and to to your point as well, uh, there's certainly things I disagree with, but for all of the representation of Christianity in spaces like the New York times and the Atlantic and, and such. Um, I'm glad that these voices are being elevated. I think I would love to see more voices. I would love to see mm-hmm. folks who are not, uh, who are within kind of uh, less represented traditions um, have uh, real estate and space um, to express their thoughts um, in such large platforms Um but I am glad to see the following um, that some of these folks uh, have garnered and am, am glad to trust their witness, um, you know, in these spaces um, that they are going to offer a, a type of Christian voice and response um, that would be similar to what I would offer. Um, I think that's, you know, uh, not something we see super often. There's not, I should say there's not a lot of Christians on in social media and in social, uh, you know, media spaces that are doing things. That I'm like, yeah, that's how I would say that. Or, yeah, that's how I would present like my Christian faith. Um, but these are some of the people who I think um, are the closest to, to that that I'm seeing. Yeah. I think the other person um, and um, from a kind of a non-Christian perspective is um, Ibu Batel. Um, yeah. I thought he, I've listened to him a few times and just thought, wow, this is a guy I really want to hear more because he's willing to kind of listen. And I think he is willing to kind of, um, as a person that's more progressive, go into more conservative spaces and listen um, and listen, not to respond, but listen to listen. Um, yeah. And we don't, again, we just don't have as many of those people Um in our church, but also in our society these days. Yeah. Ibu is a wonderful friend. He's actually now my boss, um, oh, cool. in America. Um, okay. and so my, my, most of my nine to fives are filled with working at interfaith America right now. Okay. Um, and Ibu is a wonderful conversation partner, um, who exemplifies exactly what you said, this desire to listen, um, and to, to understand how other people are thinking and to see the benefit of, all faith traditions within our society is being something that is um, constructive and beneficial um, to the flourishing of our democracy, um, of our institutions. He always says um, to a fault that bridges don't fall out of the sky, they're built. Um, and that's something I've, I've taken to heart, certainly. Um, and that there's, it takes a lot of people to build bridges. Um, it takes a lot of strategy. It takes foreknowledge. Uh, it takes skill. Um, and yeah, in order to enter into this work of, of bridge building, um, and this desire to try to heal, um, what is divided, what is broken, um, it's not something that just magically happens that it takes, you know, in the case of interfaith America, an entire institution to attempt to do this work, um, Mm -hmm. and to do it in a significant and substantial way that will last beyond, um, you know, the temporary uh, toothpick bridges that we make in, you know, high school or middle school um, to build out these substantial bridges that can last hundreds of years. Um, That takes a team um, of a lot of people and it takes people also willing to cross those bridges um, and to, you know, you can extend the metaphor to say who's going to cross over a poorly built bridge. Um, Not many people, but if you have 
the team and the skill uh, and the desire to build something really strong, which takes time. Um, you'll see people crossing it um, once they see the, the again, the, the witness, the compelling witness of people who have crossed um, and moved between or across the bridge communicating between uh, different communities um, and see the joy um, and benefit that can come from that. So anyways, it probably, I don't know how far Ibu extends that metaphor, but I really have <laughs> taken it, taken it to heart. Um, and I'm really glad to see, see his work out in the world too. Mm-hmm. You brought up something that I thought um, I wanted to kind of close things out with, and, and that is social media. Um, and I, I'm wary of bringing this up because one, everyone I feel like dumps on social media these days. And, and two, because I, I also do work in communications and so, and in social media, it's also personal, but how has, so has social media helped or hindered conversation with people across different boundaries? Um, and the reason I bring that up is, is a, a while back I was doing some, um, stuff on TikTok and um, just did the hashtag progressive clergy. And it was fascinating to see everything was kind of, you know, every issue you can think of, but it seemed like it it wasn't really kind of talking to people. It was kind of shouting, this is what I believe. And, you know, it didn't feel like it was, it was, it was constructive. It felt more kind of, I don't know, more uh, performative for lack of a better word. And so I'm, I'm kind of wondering where does social media, where can it, where has it hindered kind of this kind of work, but maybe also to spin it more positively, where has it helped? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, there's plenty of critique of, of social media. I think for me, the thing that I find most destructive is the reduction of individuals to Twitter handles or Facebook pages or TikTok videos um, or whatever else that platform might might offer. Um, because when we can reduce people to that rather than seeing them, seeing them as an entire person um, with complex identities and thoughts and experiences, then we can critique people as if they just exist in what the single tweet says and ignore everything else about them. And then make uh, assertions about that person's character and 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 life um, without actually understanding any of that. We've only simply seen what has been presented to us, um, which is often for people who are like big in social media, very curated, um, very specific, uh, letting you see only a certain part of what folks want to see. Uh, there is the kind of the the illusion of vulnerability. Uh, of being able to share what you want to share um, in a way that makes you feel genuine, but at the same time, uh, you're really just saying what you're willing to say out loud. Um, And so I think the dehumanizing aspect of social media uh, is probably the most devastating and the most hindering to us um, building relationships. But on the flip side, I mean, the people that I've met and the conversations I've gotten to be a part of because Twitter lets you just DM anybody um, mm-hmm. for the most part and just ask them a question or ask them to get on a call is something that we have not had besides the past 20 years or less. Um, and so it is such a wonderful um, and outstanding tool to be able to meet people um, across lines of difference, across physical space who we would likely never have a chance to meet um, or interact with, or all of a sudden, uh, one degree of difference, um, one direct um, message away um, from being in com- hypothetical conversation with. Um, and so for me, that is, I think, the greatest, one of the greatest gifts. Um, the other, I think, is the way that people who, especially, you know, having the season of COVID in mind, but isolation in general um, and individualism uh, being something that's valued in our society, the way that social media can create communities 
Um, I think Substack does an incredible job with this and building building communities, um, which is why I put more time towards that than Twitter and Facebook and, and things like that. Um, is something that is, it, we've seen it to destructive ends. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, tribes form around podcasts and communities uh, that rally and do destructive things. We've also seen it work to really, really beautiful um, and healing ends when people who have a shared experience or shared trauma or shared belief in a, in a constructive way um, can find the semblance of digital community where questions can be asked um, and folks can feel like they're not alone in the work that they want to do or the hope that they have for the church um, and for our society. I think that can be extremely powerful when we see people who, when we see that we're not alone in our desire to see something good um, and our mm-hmm. desire to construct something that is beneficial um, and, and loving and generative, hospitable, um, something that allows all in our society to flourish um, in the way that uh, they feel they feel called to. Um, and so I think that is one of the greatest greatest gifts of, of social media today. All right. Well, Amar, how, um, if people want to learn more about you and um, your Substack, um, where can people contact you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can reach me at my website, amarpeterman.com. My Substack um, is amardpeterman.substack.com. Uh, I am, of course, I am on all of the, the social media things. <laughs> uh, and so glad to to hear from people that way as well. All right. Well, Amar Peterman, thank you so much for taking the time. And um, I hope that we can can chat again um, in, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. All right. Take care. enjoyed the episode. I will put Amar's article as well as other links to his Substack um, and other writings in the show notes. It's a little housekeeping. Uh, please consider subscribing to the Substack. Um, that way you get the latest articles that I've written as well as podcast episodes um, immediately in your inbox. Uh, And if you are following me on Substack, you've probably noticed that I am sharing more written articles. Some of those are older ones that I'm kind of sharing again for the first time. Um, Others are are brand new. Um, So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on at the Substack. So I hope that you will consider becoming a, a subscriber. As I said in previous episodes, I am interested in offering subscriptions and premium content on Substack sometime in the future. But first, I'd like to build up to the subscriber base. So um, if you have not subscribed to Substack, please consider doing that. Um, And you can go and uh, visit the site by going to churchinmaine.substack.com. Otherwise, please consider uh, subscribing to your favorite podcast app, subscribing to Church in Maine on your favorite um, podcast app. Um, also, if you'd like to make a donation to um, help uh, kind of support uh, this mission um, and this podcast, you can uh, go to basically what is the other website for Church in Maine, and that is churchinmaine.org. Um, it was um, another website set up before Substack. Um, right now, I've kind of kept. And so that is another place where you can go and make a one-time donation. Um, you can also subscribe to that uh, website as well um, to make sure that you get uh, the latest episode uh, when they are posted. So those are two the two websites that you can go to, churchinmain.substack.com 
and churchofmaine.org. Uh, also, please consider following Church in Maine. Uh, we are on social media and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, it's been a while since I've put up any videos of our um, um, interviews on YouTube, but I'm going to try to make some time to do that. It, part of it is, of course, um, just busy with other things, being a pastor um, and my other job, so I don't always have that time. But I would like to try to get some of those videos up uh, and running on, on YouTube as well. So uh, just be on the lookout. And the links for all of those social media are going to be in the show notes. That is it for this episode of Church in Maine, episode 127. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. <laughs>